Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the controversy over Iran, and our listeners could be forgiven for wondering which controversy exactly I'm referring to there. There's a few in the news right now. Let's start here, Richard. Uh, 47 Republican senators led by Tom Cotton, the newly minted freshman from Arkansas, sent an open letter to the Iranian government saying, in essence, look, the president wants to go it alone on these negotiations, not send any deal he strikes with Tehran to Congress. As a result, a future president or a future Congress can change the policy. So in other words, Iran, don't get too comfortable. That has angered some of President Obama's supporters, and they've alleged that the letter is in violation of something called the Logan Act. So explain that law and then whether or not you think it applies here. Well, this is a, a kind of a bizarre situation. Well, I did go back and actually read the Logan Act, and I discovered much to my amazement that this is what you might wish to call the companion piece to the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798. It was passed in 1799, and it talks about private correspondence with government. So already you're not quite sure whether it covers senators of the United States because whatever it is that they're doing, it's not private conversation. And then it talks about any citizen of the United States and who without the authority of the United States, it doesn't quite say president, directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence, etc., with any foreign government or any officer thereof, and then it's now a felony to engage in these behaviors. Well, uh, think of what the potential breadth of this thing is, and you can see why the comparison to the Alien and Sedition Act is not all that inept. Uh, these 47 senators do not write the letter to Iran, but they write the letter to the president of the United States, and they say, we want you to know that if you try to go ahead, uh, we are going to undo this thing should we take power. And uh, Iran should know this as well. Well, at that particular point, you've now engaged in a felony. So it looks to me that at the very least, the whole thing has to be extremely narrowly construed to avoid some genuine problem um, with, uh, shall we say, the First Amendment. Uh, but it's more complicated than that in some sense because there's no doubt that what these guys are trying to do is to undermine the authority of the president. But by the same time, turnabout is fair play because it's quite clear that the president is trying to undermine the authority of the Congress. This is a major multilateral negotiation with Germany and France and a bunch of other countries out there <clears throat> strikes me as being a treaty. And if it's a treaty, it has to be confirmed by the, by the Senate. And yet there's no evidence that the president is willing to submit it to them. So what you do is you have unilateral action by uh, senators who are upset about the president's unilateral action. And marks just another one of these consistent declines in relationships between the Congress on the one hand and this most confrontational president on the other. So let's talk about the distinction that you mentioned there because with an international treaty, the president has to submit it to the Senate. You need a two-thirds majority for approval. There's that on the one side and then there's an executive agreement, which is what President Obama is pursuing with Iran, which bypasses Congress entirely. Um, are there bright legal lines as to when a president is supposed to use one mechanism as opposed to the other? How do, how do you choose between the two? Why do you ask hard questions when I'm <laughs> desperately in need of some easy ones? 
the whole treaty power under the Constitution is wrapped in mystery. It says anything. The Supremacy Clause says that any treaty of the United States, which means something signed by the President and by the Senate, becomes the law of the land, and it now ranks with the Constitution and with valid statutes. And, of course, it bypasses the House of Representatives and it bypasses the question of enumeration. So what you have to do is to construe the treaty power relatively narrowly. Otherwise, what the president can do is enter into a deal with Zimbabwe, and now the minimum wage in the United States uh, turns out, if he gets Senate approval, uh, to be $25 an hour. So it it can't quite be exactly what it says. Uh, But no matter how you want to slice this, uh, two things are true. One is that this is a standard 18th century treaty having to do with war and pieces between nations. And so it meets the first requirement in a narrow sense of what a treaty is. And also it's a big deal. That is, when you start having multiple nations raising the single most important issue of the time, to call this an executive agreement, which might be an agreement between two nations saying, well, you could put your embassy here and we'll locate our embassy there in your country, uh, this thing has completely different significances. So my own view about it is uh, that Mr. Cotton may well be wrong. It may well be that this thing has no effect whatsoever if it turns out that it is not sent to the Senate because it is a treaty and it hasn't gone through this. The one thing we know is if the treaty is a check and balance mechanism where the Senate can basically block the president, it is not for the president to decide whether or not something is or is not a treaty because that will completely undo the system of checks and balances that we otherwise have. And and so this seems to me to be a piece with so many of the other things that Mr. Obama has done, namely by pushing executive power to the limits on all sorts of issues having to do with immigration and so forth, and I regard it as a rather dangerous precedent, independent of the question as to whether or not I think it's a good or a bad treaty, and I don't think it comes as much surprise to our listeners. For the most part, I think that the the course that he is pursuing is a colossal mistake um, in the way in which you try to deal with somebody who is a non-cooperative, totalitarian nature. Olive branches don't do. There has to be some coercion. So... Let's assume for a moment, let's just spot the president, the executive agreement side of the argument, take the legal piece of it off the table. There are certain Republicans in the Senate who aren't making an argument here based on the the legal distinctions, at least not primarily. They're simply saying as a policy matter, look, this is a very big issue, Uh, too big in fact for the president to be freelancing. Not only do you want buy-in from the Senate, you probably need it. Um, What do you make of that argument? Well, I think in effect that they're much too timid. Uh, What the Republicans have said is this thing may be good so long as he's president, but what an executive agreement can do and an executive agreement can undo, that is the next executive can simply breach the darn thing or decide to repudiate it. The argument that I just made was somewhat different is given the fact that this is the number one issue in terms of treaty negotiations with foreign nations, the president does not have the power to classify this as an executive compact of some sort. And so therefore, unless he gets Senate approval, uh, this thing shall be null and void with respect to the United States. Now, what makes this truly nightmarish is the executive has huge powers in foreign affairs to act unilaterally, and it's also very clear that you're not likely to get the courts involved in this thing in any material way, although there is a famous case called um, 
Missouri against Holland from 1920, in which there was a migratory bird treaty, which in fact was given effect, even though it was not all that clear that the United States, given the limits on the commerce powers of 1920, could have passed the same thing by way of regulation. And Justice Holmes, in one of his finest moments, says, this is a slender reed on which to rest authority. And I remember one of my classmates 45 years ago, a guy named Lenny Becker, looking at me and says, slender? Does it mean it breaks or does it mean it holds? And, you know, that's exactly the kind of question that you're, you're left with. So this is a really unexplored area in terms of adjudication. There's a lot of academic writing about it now because there have been other cases where the question is whether or not international treaties bind the states, the so-called bond case. Look, I don't purport to be an expert on this area, but on the other hand, I think I got a lot of company in my general state of ignorance. <laughs> are there are there limits if republicans need to be maybe more aggressive on this issue are there limits though are there are there is there a point beyond which you can legitimately lodge the criticism that some democrats are already lodging that look you're 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 undercutting the president in a way that's probably dangerous to american foreign policy writ large well, this is really a very tough question. There's no doubt that you are undercutting the situation with respect to the president. I, I will agree that. Uh, but the question is whether or not by undercutting the president you're promoting the security of the United States or undermining it. I mean, there's a very deep difference of opinion between the Republicans and some of the Democrats and the president, he seems to think that he could actually work out a deal by dangling various kinds of carrots. They don't. I might add there's also a rather pronounced difference between the Obama of today and the Obama of some months ago, where he said there was a hard deadline. If we don't get a satisfactory agreement, we go back to sanctions. My view is it was a mistake to remove the sanctions to begin with. I simply do not understand how we expect these guys to behave responsibly when their history is one of complete repudiation of every treaty they've ever entered into and every ever treaty that they've ever dreamed of. And so generally speaking, my view about this whole situation um, is that this is a shipwreck. I, you know, I may not agree with Mr. Netanyahu for coming for Congress, although I'm certainly not opposed to it. But I think that the hardline approach, and remember Israel is in the crosshairs, is much preferable to the president. So I think it's fair to say that he has endangered national security. In general, I think his whole passivity in the Middle East, his unwillingness to use ground force, results not only in the loss of human lives, but the destruction of all sorts of historical monuments of religious significance. I do not think this is a good situation. And the Republicans are driven by desperation, and I have to confess that I share the complete frustration that they have with the president. Do these guys really need nuclear power for energy when they're awash in oil, and oil is very cheap at this particular point in time? Give me a break. This is not what they're doing. They're a militarist nation. They're a rogue nation, and to treat them in this particular fashion is, in fact, to legitimate their worst ambitions. And heavens knows the Israelis may act unilaterally, and that would be a very sorry uh, type situation. So I understand what the Republicans are doing. I, I think it's kind of dramatic, but let me put it to you the following way. Take it out of the letter. Don't send a letter to the Shah. Make it an open letter to the president. Exactly the same political effect. Nothing to do whatsoever with respect to the Logan Act under these circumstances unless you read it in a bizarre fashion. And, and what happens is we have the same kind of confrontation. Look, we have, I think, the most inept president in foreign affairs, including people like Jimmy Potter ever, in, at least in my lifetime, which is now, you know, reasonably long since I certainly I remember Harry Truman as president. And I think the pushback is in part a sign of the frustration that people have uh, with the president and his constant series of concessions uh, done under a patina of I really know what I'm doing 
when in fact uh, most of his critics don't believe that he does. So final question, Richard. Uh, one thing that now seems certain is that the federal government is not going to have for the little less than two years that President Obama remains in office um, anything approaching a unified policy regarding Iran. You'll, you'll essentially have Congress and the president working to some extent at cross purposes. Is that something that in your judgment works for or against Iran's interests? Whenever there's division and confusion in the United States, it works against the United States because people will not regard us as a faithful ally. It's not just simply a question of the way in which the United States starts to work with respect to um, Iran alone. It's also a question of the way in which multiple nations start to interact with one another. And uh, we are going to lose the confidence of all our allies. So I think these guys have to sit down and try to figure out how to become more coherent on foreign policy. And that means that the president has to listen to the Congress and the Republicans, alas, have to listen to the president. I mean, I agree that the Republicans, that the president is on a very dangerous course, uh, but they can't make a perilous journal more perilous by kind of constantly undercutting him. But he, by the other hand, has to listen to them. There has to be at least some spirit of give and take and some spirit of compromise if you're going to run this. Uh, but I think both sides are digging in and the massive distrust on Capitol Hill of the president is reciprocated. So that's bad news for all Americans. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.